Namaskaram. Uh, today, I will, I, I will just be answering questions today. I will start with a question that, um, that I was sent a couple of days ago by Katie. She received it from a devotee through Facebook. Uh, and that devotee asked her to pass it on to me. Um, what that person wrote is, my questions are this. When I practice self-investigation, I get a slight sensation someplace behind my eyes or a bit deeper. And that allows me to create a distance from whatever I am engaged in in the world. So for instance, when I am walking and I get a negative thought, I almost scatter my vision and get deeper from my face towards the mid-head, and that seems to do the trick of dropping the thought and becoming present. Sometimes when I do self-investigation, I imagine literally turning my face back on myself and then going through the imaginative space, trying to catch the ego around corners. As you can see, all my attempts are visual or tactile, or at least in part. Could you please comment on this? I somehow feel I'm not doing it right. Also, the technique works well when I am involved in physical activity like walking, but it doesn't work when I'm reading. So I wonder if you have something to say about staying in the source while reading or writing from your experience. Thank you. So that is a question. Um, <clears throat> it, it is sometimes useful to consider questions like this because it's very difficult to express in words what the practice of self-investigation is because it's a very subtle process. But it's useful to understand what it is not. That helps us to understand what it is. And um, what this person is describing is, um, is basically an imaginative process. Um, the, well, they, they start off by saying, I get a sun, slight sensation someplace behind my eyes or a bit deeper. Any sensation is something that appears and disappears. It appears to us and it disappears from us. So it is something other than ourself. So we, sh but our aim in self-investigation is to attend to nothing other than ourself. That is to our own being, to our fundamental awareness, I am. So anything that appears or disappears is something other than ourself and therefore should not be attended to. This is why Bhagavan gave us the clue to whom does this appear? That is, Bhagavan didn't want us to question to whom, because me questioning is again a mental activity, but that, that question is a pointer. What he actually said is, investigate to whom. So to whom does anything appear? Any sensation, any thought, any feeling, any perception, any memory, whatever it may be, to whom does it appear? It appears to me, to us, to ourselves. So investigating to whom means turning our attention back towards ourself, towards the knower of whatever is known. So um, 
and the knower obviously isn't an object. The knower is the subject. So we are, it's not a thing we are in, in, attending to. It is just our, our own being. Which and obviously our own being is the subtlest of all things, but though it is very subtle, we all clearly know I am, as as Murugana says in the Anupalavi of um, of uh, Anmavide, Atman, meaning ourself, our own being, is so clearly known to every to even to the dullest of people that. Uh, an amalaka fruit in the palm is by comparison something vague that is often in uh, in Tamil and and also I think in other Indian languages if if you want to say something is very clear you say as clear as an amalaka fruit in the hand um, but even the amalaka fruit in the hand is relatively speaking uh, unclear compared to the what the one thing that we all know clearly all the time is I am, our own existence, our own being. So that is what we are to investigate. As Bhagavan said, we need to investigate who am I. So we are not invest we are not investigating any thought or feeling or sensation. No imagination is necessary. We don't need to imagine our existence because we all know. I am, whether whether our attention is on I am or not, but one thing we know always is I am, our own being. We know it throughout the waking state, throughout the dream state, and throughout sleep. The difference between sleep on the one hand and waking and dream on the other hand, in all three states, we are aware of our own being. In sleep, we're aware of nothing other than our being. Whereas in waking and dream, we're aware of our being and we're aware of an identity. I, we're not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this person. I am this body. And because of this identification, we are consequently aware of things other than ourselves. So um, the... the, the <coughs> The practice is simply to turn our attention back towards ourself, uh, towards our own being. Um, a little further on, after describing various things, this person says, um, then going through the imaginative space, trying to catch the ego around corners. Ego is not an object. We can never, ego is not something we can catch or find. As Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, if we, if we seek ego, if we look for ego, if we try to find ego, it will take flight, it will disappear. Why? Because we seem to be ego only so long as we're attending to things other than ourself. When we turn our attention back towards ourself, there is nothing to be seen but our own being. There's no such thing as ego at all. It is like if you're told to look at the snake very carefully, if you try to look at the snake very carefully, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Likewise, if we look at, if we, ego is the eye that is now aware of itself as I am Michael, I am this person, uh, or I mean, Michael or whatever the name may be, that's, that's irrelevant. But we, the ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this. <laughs> 
But when we we're aware of ourselves as I am this, so long as we're attending to things other than ourselves, when we turn our attention back towards ourselves to try to see what am I, these adjuncts of this this name and form that we now identify ourselves with, these slip off. That is, they recede into the background, and what remains shining is our own being. Just like when we when we look carefully at the, at the snake, the appearance of a snake disappears, and the underlying reality, the rope, alone remains shining. It's exactly the same with this self-investigation. So the more we attend to ourselves, the more ego slips off and our our mere being i am alone remains so if we if we imagine we're trying to catch ego around the corner what 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 lurks behind corners in the mind are only things other than ourselves objects ego can never be an object ego is the subject the knower of all objects and we seem to be the subject so long as we're attending to things other than ourselves, when we attend to ourselves, the 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 our 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 identity as the knower subsides, and the pure awareness I am alone remains. This is the practice of self-investigation. It is very very simple, although very subtle, to to gain the skill. To, to hold on to self-attentiveness requires patient and persistent practice. It is not difficult. As Bhagavan said, this is the easiest of all practices because the one thing we know more clearly than any other thing is our own being. But it seems difficult because the nature of the of ego or mind is to always be going outwards, always trying to grasp things other than itself, because it's only so long as we are holding on to other things. Holding on to means attending to and being aware of things other than ourselves, but we seem to be ego. So as ego, our very existence as ego depends on our attending to things other than ourselves. So we have very strong inclinations to attend to other things. Those inclinations to attend to other things are what Bhagavan refers to as vishaya vasanas. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. Anything other than ourselves is a vishaya. Vasana means inclination. So the inclination to hold on to other things, which is the very, it's very, the vasanas are not ego, but it's the very nature of ego to have vasanas, to have strong inclinations, to hold on to things other than itself, because this is how we survive as ego. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. If we turn our attention back towards ourselves to see who am I, as Bhagavan said, this ego takes flight, the ego subsides and dissolves back into its source, and our being alone remains. So the aim in self-investigation is to investigate who am I. It's not any object we are to investigate. It's the reality of the subject, the fundamental awareness of our being, I am. That is what we are to investigate. Um, uh, so, and this person says, uh, toward, toward, in the last sentence, um, I wonder if you have something to say about staying at the source while reading or writing from your experience. What does staying at the source mean? Firstly, we need to understand what is the source. The source from which we've risen as ego 
is I am, our own being. That is, first we must exist before we can rise. So uh, that is, our existence is what is eternal. From our existence, from that fundamental awareness, I am, rises this false awareness, I am this person, I am this body. That is, that is the rising of ego. So staying in the source or abiding in the source or means not rising as ego. It's, we, we rise and stand as ego by attending to things other than ourselves. But by attending to ourselves, we bring about the subsidence and dissolution of ego. So the only way to stay in the source is to hold on to ourselves, to hold on to our own being. Uh, some people like to think of it in terms of attending to ego, but there's no really no ego to attend to. Attending to ego is like looking at the snake. If you look at the snake carefully enough, you see it's just a rope. Likewise, if we look at, at this I that seems to have risen as I am this person, its rising will, sub it, 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 its rising will subside, and what will remain is its underlying reality or source, its source and substance, I am. That is what we are to try and attend to. We can do that whether we are walking or talking or reading or writing or um, whatever we may be experiencing. Even when we're in pain, for example, sometimes we experience pain for one reason or another. But we cannot experience any pain without first being aware of our existence. Who is experiencing the pain? I am experiencing the pain. So. But, the practice is to gain the skill to continue holding on to our being, whatever may appear or disappear, whatever pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences, joys or sorrows, whatever may be there, none of these things could be known if we were not present, if we didn't exist. So it's our own existence that we are to attend to. Um, so. I hope this adequately answers that question. I, there's one other uh, comment that was written on one of the videos yesterday, but I'd also like to talk about here because it's also about the practice of self-investigation. That is, someone wrote um, on one of the of one of my videos yesterday. Oh, uh, yesterday or day, I think yeah, I think it was yesterday. I once saw a documentary on Ramana. And his devotee, whose name I can't remember, said something about self-inquiry. He said to do self-inquiry as if you're trying to remember an old friend. For some reason, this really helped me understand it better. I mean, I still don't know if I'm doing it correctly, but I think it helped a little. Um, this is a... This is... That is, where is what the previous person whose, uh, whose message I was, uh, questions I was replying to, it's very clearly but clear that he or she are, are doing something imaginative. Um, so that's very clearly wrong. Here, when, he, when this person says to do self-inquiry as if you're trying to remember an old friend, um, it's worth considering what, what, what actually this means. Firstly, um, it is often said that we have forgotten ourselves. 
But what does it, what does it mean when it is said we have forgotten ourselves? We never forget our existence. We always know I am. What we have forgotten or seemingly forgotten is our identity. And we have, our identity means what we are. So we are always aware that we are, but we, we're not clearly aware what we are. The reason we're not aware what we are is because we now mistake ourselves to be something other than what we are. So we now mistake ourselves to be a person, to be a body. So this false awareness, I am this person, which is otherwise called ego, is also sometimes described as self-forgetfulness. But it's important to understand what we are forgetting is only our identity, not our existence. So to know what we actually are, what we need to do is to investigate ourselves, in other words, our own existence. In fact, our existence is our identity, our true identity. That is, we are nothing other than I am. That's why Bhagavan often used to say, I am I, nan nan or aham aham. Unfortunately, in English books, this is generally translated as I hyphen I, um, which is a complete misinterpretation because I I hyphen I doesn't really mean anything. Nan nan or aham aham means I am I. The am is, is understood there. That is in Tamil or Sanskrit. If you want to say a simple sentence like A is B, you simply say AB. The is is understood. The copula is understood. So if you want to say, um, if you want to say, uh, for example, Shivoham means Shiva, I. The is is understood there. Shiva is I. Soham. He, I, in, the is is understood there. He is I. Um, likewise, in Tamil, uh, nan idu means I this, but that is literally the words mean I this, but it very clearly implies I am this. Uh, or nan ah, or nan ya, whatever. Uh, that is I who. The am is understood there. I am who, who am I, in other words. So when Bhagavan talks about nan nan or ahamaham, he means I am I. That's a very, very, though that may seem to be a tautology to say I am I, it, it is, he, Bhagavan actually revealing there what is our true identity. Our true identity is nothing other than I. In other words, our identity is our very existence. Any identifying with anything other than our being is a false identity. That is what, that which identifies with anything other than I am is ego. Whereas as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this or I am that. Whereas the, uh, so, uh, because we are now wrongly aware of ourselves as I am this person, I am this body, I am, I am Michael or I am whoever, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are, which is as just pure being. But there is never a moment when we are not aware of our being. But we just fall. We're aware. We couldn't be aware. I am. I am this person. If we were not aware, I am. So the reality in ego is I am. The 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 uh, I am this or I am that. But this or that is an adjunct that. That's a false identity. So 
when when he said we have forgotten ourselves, that means we've mistaken ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. Bhagavan also sometimes describes the practice of self-investigation as Swarupa Smarana, self-remembrance is what Swarupa Smarana literally means remembrance of our real nature. In other words, remembrance of our own being. Their remembrance means holding on to it, not for, not not forgetting. Uh, because though we are always aware I am, because of our we take so much interest in things other than ourselves, we generally overlook this fundamental awareness I am. We take our being for granted. So self-remembrance means not forgetting to be to not not forgetting our fundamental awareness I am. In other words, being constant being constantly self-attentive. Self self-remembrance is another way of describing uh, uh, self-attentiveness. So we have to just remember our being. So remembering our being, to describe it as trying to remember an old friend, um, it, it, that doesn't seem to be such an apt analogy because an old friend is something other than ourselves. We can forget old friends. There are so many people we've known in the past we may totally have forgotten about now. Um, we may or we may have a very vague memory about a person we sometimes we meet a person we think i'm sure i've met this person before uh, so we have a vague memory but remembering and forgetting and remembering things other than ourselves is quite different to to um that is though we use the same words forgetting <coughs> ourselves it's forgetting our identity. It's not forgetting our existence. So we all we are always aware of ourselves. So it's not like remembering something um, that we can no longer remember. Our existence is ever available for us to remember. So this this to describe the practice of self-inquiry as like trying to remember an old friend seems to me to be not a very good analogy because it's not like trying to remember anything other than ourself. It's remembering ourself, remembering our own being, remembering that which is ever shining, but which we generally overlook because of our interest in other things. Um, I hope that clarification helps a little. Um, so having talked a little bit about what self-investigation is not, I hope this has to some extent helped to clarify what self-investigation is. Self-investigation is nothing but being self-attentive. In in the 16th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan gives a very clear, simple and unambiguous definition of what is Atmavichara. He says, Sada Kalamum Manate uh, atma vil vaitirupat kutan atma vicharam indrupaya. What that means is the name atma vichara refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself. Uh, Sadakalama means always, manate is the mind, uh, atma vil means on oneself. In other words, always fixing our attention. When, when we talk about keeping your mind on something, that means keeping your, our attention on it. So 
that what what Bhagavan implies there is that self-investigation is nothing but always keeping our attention on ourselves. It's as simple as that. That is our of course, we have to understand when it's said to fix our mind on ourselves. We need to understand what we are. If we take, if I take myself to be this body, then looking at myself, uh, this body, the reflection of this body in the mirror may seem to me to be self-attention. No, obviously it's not that. We are not this body. We are not this mind. We are not anything that appears or disappears. We are the underlying reality I am. That is what we need to fix our attention on. Um, so I, I hope this has, this maybe to some extent helps to clarify what the practices of self-investigation is. So if anyone has any um, questions either on this subject or any other subject, um, please feel free to ask. There are some questions, Michael. Yeah. Um, the first one is, Bhagwan teaches us that because mind and body don't exist in sleep, we cannot be the mind or body. What does Bhagwan mean by mind here? Does it mean ego or does it mean the collection of thoughts? Would you mind clarifying this? Uh, it means both. Uh, Bhagwan clearly says ego is absent in sleep. Since ego is absent, everything else is absent because that is, take verse 18 of Upadeshundia, for example. What Bhagavan says there is, he begins by saying, Enningale manam. That means thoughts alone of a mind. And then he says, Yavinam nan enam enname mulamam. Of all the thoughts, the thought called I is the root. And then he concludes by saying, therefore, mind is I. In other words, what the mind essentially is, is only this ego, the first thought called I. Why, why is ego the root of all other thoughts? Because ego is the subject. All other thoughts are objects. No other thought can exist except in the view of ego. So without ego, there cannot be any other thought. This is why he says in the fifth paragraph of Nana, of all the thoughts that arise in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first. Only after this rises do other thoughts rise. Only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. Without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. Second and third persons in that context means all other thoughts. In, in, word, in other words, anything other than ourselves, all objects or phenomena exist only in the view of ego, the subject. So none of them can exist without ego. Because ego is absent in sleep, therefore body, mind, world, everything is absent. So when he said mind is absent in sleep, mind is never absent so long as ego is present. Because so long as there's ego, it'll always be catching hold of some, projecting and catching hold of some other thought. So when he talks about the absence of mind, he means the absence of ego. The absence of ego includes the absence of all other thoughts. So I, I hope that um, that adequately answers that question. But the important thing is ego is absent in sleep. Why? Because what is ego? Ego is the false identification. I am this person. In sleep, what are we aware of? 
we're not even aware of anything. <laughs> that is, we are just aware I am. We're aware nothing other than I am. So in, in ego, we're aware of our existence. We're not aware of any identity. Uh, and our existence, that is our true identity. I hope that adequately answered that question. Yes, sir, it does. Thank you. Right. Thank you, sir. The next question is, um, in this path of self-inquiry, I'm more and more feeling the content of my mind, especially the bad ones. Uh, that's envy, jealousy, anger, impatience. In such moments, and honestly speaking, I don't ask the question to whom these irritating feelings appear. I don't inquire this because I'm so caught up in that feeling. But afterwards, I reconsider and know it as my weakness. I do believe my struggling with such ill feelings and irritating thoughts can be the first step in self-investigation. Maybe I need to reach a phase where I'm not irritated or driven by any ill thought. Then I might move to a higher sphere of clarity of mind that can lead to better practice of self-inquiry. Is my understanding correct? Um, that is when we try to attend to ourselves, that naturally churns out all the dirt that's inside, because the, the nature of the mind or ego is always to go outwards, to try to grasp things other than itself. So when we try to hold on to ourself alone, all these vasanas rise to the surface. The vasanas are the inclinations to attend to other things. So they will draw our attention away from ourselves. And those vasanas that are stronger, that are more emotionally charged, um, things like uh, whatever you mentioned, jealousy or whatever it is, or negative thoughts or whatever it is, all these, um, they... As Bhagavan said, all that is inside has to come out, because if it doesn't come out, we can't get rid of it. Um, but what happens when the, when vasanas rise to the surface, and they are constantly rising, Bhagavan describes in Nana, he says, though the Vishaya vasanas are rising in countless numbers like ocean waves, so vasanas are always rise, and the, the vasanas, the um, they are trying to draw our attention away from ourselves, so to speak. Um, but the vasanas obviously are not other than ourselves. The vasanas are our own likes and dislikes for other things. So that is, we are trying to distract ourselves. Um, we, we, but by um, it, allowing all these vasanas to arise, when the vasanas arise, we. Vasanas are only inclinations. So we are never bound by any vasana. We are free either to be swayed by any particular vasana or not swayed by it. So how we weaken vasanas is by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So inevitably, when we are practicing self-investigation, all sorts of things will come up to the surface of the mind. The only way to deal with them is to hold on to self-attentiveness. To the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we 
thereby do not allow ourselves to be swayed by babasanas. And when we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by them, they lose their strength. That is, vasanas have no strength of their own. Whatever strength they seem to have is strength that they derive from us. We give vasanas strength by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. To use a very, um, a very gross example, but it illustrates it well. Some people have a habit of smoking. So they've been smoking for so many years, they, the, the inclination to smoke is very, very strong. And they may, they may understand smoking is not good for my health, so I should give up smoking. But though they are very concerned about their health, the, the inclination to smoke is so strong, there's a struggle going on within them, whether to smoke or not to smoke, whether to, whether to be swayed by the inclination to smoke or by the inclination to protect my health and not smoke. If, if, they, if, they are, if their liking to remain healthy is not strong enough, they will be constantly swayed by that uh, inclination to smoke. And so the inclination to smoke just becomes stronger and stronger. But if finally they, they come to the conclusion, no, no, I have to give up this or I'm going to, it's not going to be good for me. It, if they begin to resist that inclination, and avoid smoking. The first day, it'll be very difficult. Second day, it'll be difficult. As time goes on, it'll become easier and easier for them to resist that because the inclination is growing weaker and the inclination to maintain the health is growing stronger. So this, this is just an illustration of the nature of vasanas. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular vasana, the stronger it becomes. If we want to weaken vasanas, we need to avoid being swayed by them. What is the most effective way of avoiding being swayed by vasanas? It's by vishaya vasanas, that is, that is, inclinations to attend to other things. It is by holding on to self-attentiveness. Because when we are self-attentive, we are not attending to any vishayas. We are not allowing our mind to be swayed by any um, vishayas. Only when we lose hold on our self-attentiveness do we again get swayed by these vishaya vasanas. So, it is inevitable. Whatever dirt is inside has to come up to the surface. But how we can clean off that, clear off that dirt, how we can purify the mind is by holding on to self-attentiveness. Of all the means to purify the mind, this is the most effective. Of course, other practices, other types of meditation, meditating on a name or form of God, all these can help to purify the mind, but none of them are as effective as this simple practice of holding on to our own being. Because even when you're attending to a thought, to a name or form of God, for example, it, that is still a vishaya, still something other than yourself. So we, to, the, the most effective way of purifying the mind is this practice of self-investigation. This is what Bhagavan means in verse 8 of Upadesha Undia, where he says, rather than anyabhava, anyabhava means meditating on something other than oneself. In the context, it means meditating on God as other than one, oneself, but we can also take more broadly, meditating on anything other than oneself. 
uh, uh, ananya bhava, meditating on what is not other than oneself, in other words, meditating on oneself alone, avanahamahum ananya bhava, avanahamahum means in which he is I. That is, with the understanding that God is that which is shining in our heart as I, attending to nothing other than I, that is, Bhagavan says, anatinam utmam, that is best among all. In the context, because from verse 3 up to verse 8, he's talking about purification of mind, and he talks about all the various karmas that can be done to purify the mind, if they're done nishkarmya, without desire. Uh, the Nishkamiya uh, Puja, Japa, Dhyana, he goes through each one saying how each one is better than the previous one. But best among all is to meditate on nothing other than oneself, Ananya Baba. That is the most effective means to purify the mind. And by the strength of that Ananya Baba, by the strength of that self attentiveness, he, he goes on in the next verse, verse 9, to say, Baba Balatina, by the strength of that meditation, that means by the strength of meditation on ourself, in other words, by the strength of self-attentiveness or self-investigation, uh, being in one's real being, one's real being, which is Bhavana uh, Tita, which transcends Bhavana. Bhavana there means meditation in the form of mental activity. Because holding on to our, our, our own being is not a doing, it is a state of just being. So being in Sat Baba, being in our real being, which transcends mental activity, that is Parabhakti Tattva, that is the supreme devotion. So this, there's no practice that is so efficacious in purifying the mind as this practice of self-investigation. But the purification is effective to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness. If when we're trying to be self-attentive, we get carried away by thoughts of anger or jealousy or whatever, we are, we are, um, we are, we are missing the opportunity. The opportunity we need to hold on to is to hold on to our own being. The more we hold on to our being, the more these other things will rise. All the dirt, as Bhagavan said, whatever dirt is inside has to come out. Because only when it comes out can we clear it off. We clear it off not by fighting with it. We can't fight. We can't fight our anger or passion or all these things. We 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 overcome these things by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by those vasanas, by holding on to our being. That's how we win this 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 battle. But Bhagavan sometimes in Akshramla he describes it as Arulpuratam, warfare of grace. Why is it the warfare of grace? Because it is a battle within our own will between, on the one hand, Satvasana, the, the inclination just to be, to hold on to our being and just be as we are. And the, on the other hand, all the Vishaya Vasanas. The Satvasana is grace. It is grace that has given us that inclination, that liking to hold on to our being and to be as we actually are. So that is actually the working of grace in our heart. It is, that grace manifests in our heart in the form of satvasana, this love to hold on to our being. So this is truly a warfare fought by grace.
So we're never alone in this battle. Bhagavan is always on our side. We could never conquer this mind. That is, mind cannot conquer itself without a higher power of Bhagavan's grace. It's only, but Bhagavan's grace is not something other than ourselves. Bhagavan's grace is not something up in heaven that's going to come and descend down upon us. Bhagavan's grace is ever shining in our heart as our own being. So by holding on to our being, we are surrendering ourselves to his grace and allowing his grace to do the work of clearing out all these passions. So the more we hold on to our being, the more the purification is done by his grace. Because this is a this is a struggle that we all have to go through, but we can we 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 will all eventually win because of his grace, because his grace is the is the driving force behind this battle. But we have to be willing to yield ourselves to that grace by holding on to our being. I've forgotten now what the question was, but I hope that answered it. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, clarify something in case other people are wondering. Um, when, say, we have certain emotions coming up, it could be, uh, as was said, some kind of anger or uh, jealousy or anxiety or fear or whatever it might be. Um, there's a sort of a fine line between suppression and uh, simply letting it go and simply uh, sort of focusing on being again, because I think very often there is a resistance. People feel that going back into being is resisting it. And I was wondering whether it would help everyone at all uh, to see the distinction between uh, suppressing an emotion uh, or a vasana which comes up and simply uh, sort of focusing on one's being it, it sounds very simple that we just you know that um, because if something comes up is there is an object before us it's a vasana I mean it, it's a vishaya vasana the object is there before us an emotion or whatever and I think that the, that the difficulty is always how to move from sort of being oriented to that object or to that emotion to actually sinking back if one likes into being yeah. um, and how that is not mistaken for some kind of resistance to the emotion and suppression of it a kind of a pushing uh, which is still tied to that emotion yeah. in a way uh, uh, and letting go I, i'm not sure but perhaps yeah, yeah. that would no, be helpful no, no. what what you say is correct we we are not directly fighting the the babasanas or fighting the emotions or whatever it is we are just holding on to our being and thereby avoiding being swayed by them like any number of asanas bhagavan says in the sixth paragraph of uh, nana etena however many thoughts rise so what we shouldn't be concerned they they will inevitably be rising it, it, it's a very it's the very nature of the mind but the thoughts will be constantly rising we shouldn't be moved by them. We shouldn't be swayed by them. We should be just holding on to our being. Let them come or let them go. We are, we, it is that, that Udasina Baba, being indifferent to them. Why? Because our only concern should be holding on to our being. We don't have to fight with the Vasanas. We simply have to hold on to our being. If we hold to the extent to which we hold on to our being, we are thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the Vasanas. So the Vasanas will, uh, like uh, plants that are, de that, that are deprived of water, they will, they will uh, wither and die. 
So this is the only way to succeed in this. If we start trying to fight with the vasanas, then it's just the mind fighting with itself. It, it's obviously futile. But the only thing is, uh, this is why Bhagavan often said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti, that love is the key to success in this path. We must have more and more love just to hold on to our being. It's only by this love to hold on to our being, this satvasana or uh, swatma bhakti, that we overcome all the other desires. We are not fighting the desires, we are just cultivating this love to hold on to our being. It is a very important distinction, because otherwise if we begin to fight the vasana, there's no end to it. Uh, then, uh, thank you, Michael. I think that's very helpful. Uh, the next question is, could you please explain the, signif the significance of Bhagavan saying that we should be uninterruptedly self-attentive in Nanyar? Other parts can be very lenient and say we can practice 20 minutes in the morning and evening, but not Bhagwan's path. Bhagwan emphasizes that this path has to be all-consuming and unceasing and relentless. And yet in other places, Bhagwan says that we should try slowly, slowly, gently, gently to be self-attentive. Right. That's true. That's true. Um, yes. In, when he defines uh, uh, the sentence I referred to earlier, where he defines what is Atmabhichara, he begins by saying sada kalamum, that means always, always keeping the mind fixed in oneself. That alone is called atma vichara. And um, in the 11th paragraph, he says, Oruvan tan sarupa madeyam varayal nirantara swarupa smaranaye kai patruvanayin adu andre podum. Until one attains one's own real nature, uh, if one holds on to, if one clings fast to Swarupa Smarana, the self-remembrance, uh, Nirantara, un uninterrupted self-remembrance, that alone is sufficient. So he so much emphasizes, but we should be trying to do this always. But as you say, also, but, um, but he also says, slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually. He translated the, um, a verse from Bhagavad Gita in, in verse, um, uh, chapter 6, verse 25, I think it is. Sane, sane, uparamed. Can't remember the rest of the first line, but then he says, Atma samstam manakritva nakinchitape chintayet. And Bowen translated that into, into Tamil. The, the last line of, in the, the Sanskrit, Apma Samstam Mana Kritva, keep the mind, fix uh, uh, the mind in, in, in yourself. In, exact, in other words, exactly the same that Bhagavan is saying in Nana, what Apma Vichara is, Nakinchitape Chintaya, do not think of anything else whatsoever. In other words, we should hold on to self attentiveness so firmly that we do not think of anything else. But he begins by, Krishna begins that verse with the words sanai sanai, gradually, gradually, slowly, slowly. And Bhagavan translated it in Tamil as mella mella. So slowly, slowly, that is, to, to, the, the, there's not a contradiction here. We need to understand it in context. Our, our aim is to hold on to self-attentiveness uninterruptedly, constantly. but. Can any of us do that? 
I, I don't think any of us can honestly put up our hand and say, oh, yes, I hold on to self-attentiveness, because the very nature of the mind is going outward. But that is what we should be aiming for. And in order to reach that point where we can hold on uninterruptedly, we need to gradually, gradually cultivate this, this practice. It's by the... It's by, by practice, in, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, Ipati paraka paraka, by practicing and practicing in this way, manate, uh, uh, manate uh, tan piripiditil tangi nikam shak, manatiku tan, um, tan uh, piripiditil uh, tangi nikam shakti adikari kindradu. By practicing and practicing in this way, the power of the mind to uh, remain in its birthplace, in other words, in its source, increases. So we, we, our, our aim is to be constantly self-attentive. In order to be constantly self-attentive, we need, we need to um, gradually, gradually, gradually cultivate this practice. So though it may seem that there's a contradiction between the two, the, the mella mella or sane sane, the gradually gradually is the means. The end is the constant self-attentiveness. So, but we, we why Bhagavan emphasizes constant, it's, it's fine to do it, to try to be self-attentive 20 minutes morning, 20 minutes evening, something like that. But Supposing you sit, you sit for 20 minutes to try and be self-attentive. If all the day your mind has been wandering on other thoughts, when you sit down for 20 minutes, your mind's going to continue wandering on other thoughts. So we, we, we are not going to achieve it just in 20 minutes. It is, the, the practice should be going on throughout the day. Whenever we notice our attention has slipped away towards other things, we should draw it back to ourselves. So uh, we, we should be trying always to be self-attentive as much as possible. But Bhagavan is realistic. Bhagavan knows that we're not going, we're not going to suddenly be able to sit down and, um, and be constantly self-attentive. That's why he says slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually. We, the mind has very strong vishayabhasana, very strong inclinations to go outwards. We need to wean it off those outward-going inclinations by cultivating the love to turn within. And that can be done only by patient and persistent practice. The next question is, uh, could you please clarify further, if I'm reading with intensity and concentration or I'm doing something else with a great focus, in both cases, I am not aware of myself. Then self-attentiveness periodically requires us to come out and be as I am. The point is, how can I do both, just be and also read or focus? Um, firstly, we never actually forget ourselves. Whatever we may be doing, however much we may be absorbed in some other task, who is absorbed in that? I am. So the... The awareness of our own existence is always there in the background. We just overlook it when we are when our mind is much engrossed in something else. <clears throat> By that is, if we if we observe the mind, for example, take a simple example. Many people nowadays drive cars. When they when 
if you're, if you're accustomed to driving a car, and you're driving from A to B along a familiar route, maybe you're dri you drive to work every day, for example, how much of your attention is actually on the driving? It will be a very small part of your attention. Most of your attention, you'll be thinking about um, problems at home or problems in the office or what your, what, what, what your plans for the future or your regrets about the past or whatever it is. Your mind will be full of so many other thoughts, but you'll be driving perfectly well. Because most of these actions go on more or less on autopilot. Uh, that is, sometimes you may uh, wonder, oh, was there a red light there? Did I stop at the red light there or not? You was, if there was a red light, you will certainly have stopped. But you're not able to remember it at all because so little of your attention is on that. Your attention is on so many other things. Like that with most of the things we do, we do it with very minimum attention. There's constant, there's a constant stream of thoughts going through our mind about this or that, which may have no relevance whatsoever to what we are now doing. So um, if we if all the time that we spend on unnecessary thoughts, we were to spend being self-attentive, 99% of our time would be self-attentive because most of the thoughts we think are not at all necessary at this present moment. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is, um, sometimes I illustrate this with an example. Supposing a very dear friend of yours is critically ill in hospital, maybe they've got um covid or maybe they've just they, they've been in a car accident or something so they're very critically ill but doctors are not able to say whether your friend is going to pull through or not <clears throat> will you not in the midst of all your other activities will not the thought of your friend be coming back to your mind constantly so even when you're at office, when you're doing your work, uh, uh, doing the accounts or whatever you may be, whatever work you may be doing, it may require mental work, but still the thought of your friend will be constantly there in the back of your mind because of your love for them. Likewise, if we have so much love to know who am I, self-attentiveness will be going on in the background, even in spite of all the other activities. That's a second way of approaching it. Another deeper way of approaching it is, according to Bhagavan, whatever is to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not to happen is not going to happen. Because our, everything that we are to experience in this life is already preordained according to prarabdha. And according to our prarabdha, our mind, speech, and body will be made to do whatever actions are necessary to do in order for our prarabdha to unfold. This is what Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother. Avarabha prarabdha prakaram adakanavan angangirindu artavipan. That means, in accordance with the destiny of each one, he who is for that, he who is for that implies God or Guru, Bhagavan, uh, um, Angangirindu, being there, there, that means being in each place, implies being in the heart of each of us, Artavipan, he will make us dance. In other words, whatever actions of our mind, speech, and body are necessary for our prarabdha to unfold, our mind, speech, and body will be driven by God uh, to do so. They're driven by Bhagavan. So we need not concern ourselves with, with that. 
that doesn't mean, as some people wrongly take it to mean, that all our actions are driven only by uh, Bhagavan. If all our actions are driven by Bhagavan, then we are not the doer of actions and we will not experience the resulting fruit. That is obviously not the case. As Bhagavan says in verse 38, if we are the doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. So we, we are the doer of actions because many of the actions we do are actions that we do under the sway of our vasanas. Even some of the actions that we do, driven by Bhagavan, for the unfoldment of uh, prarabdha, those actions are also being driven by our vasanas. For example, supposing it's our, um, our destiny today to eat a very tasty meal. Um, so, because it's our destiny, we will be made to do whatever is necessary to buy the ingredients and to cook the meal. And, but we also have a desire to eat that tasty meal. So not only is that action being driven by Bhagavan, it's also being driven by our will. So uh, much of our, most of our actions are to a greater or lesser extent driven by our vasanas. But whatever actions are actually going to bear, actually going to, um, that, that is, we, we cannot do any action that is going to enable us to experience anything that is not destined to be experienced or to uh, avoid experiencing what is destined to be experienced. This is what Bhagavan says in the next two sentences of that note to his mother. In the second sentence, he says, Endrum naduvadudu, in Muyichikanum Naduvadu, or what is never to happen will not happen, however much effort is made. Nadapadu in Tadeseinum Niladu, what is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of uh, obstacle. What we have to infer from that is we are free to want to experience what is we are not destined to experience. We are free to try to experience it, but however much effort we make, it, we're not going to experience it because it's not destined to happen. Likewise, we are free to want to avoid what we're destined to experience. We, uh, we are free to try to avoid it, but however much we try, it cannot be avoided because it's destined. And then he says, this is certain. Ahalin monamai irike nandru. Therefore, being silent is good. What does he mean by being silent? Obviously, he doesn't mean not doing any action by mind, speech, and body, because if uh, those actions that are necessary for uh, uh, prarabdha to unfold will be made to do it. What he means by being silent is not rising as ego and allowing ourselves to be swayed by our vasanas. That is good. So, the and if we are, if we go deep in this path of holding on to self-attentiveness, whatever actions of mind, speech, and body are necessary for the prarabdha to unfold, we will be made to do that. So we do not actually have to worry at all about any actions. Those actions that we but we are going to be made to do will be made to do by God, so there's no concern of us. Let him, we surrender our mind, speech, and body to him. Let him do whatever he wants with them. Ours, our aim is to hold on to our being. This is also what Bhagavan implies in the 13th paragraph of Nana, 
when he says, when one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, in this context, Karyas means whatever ought to happen, whatever, uh, what, whatever needs to happen, or whatever needs to be done. So all our actions and all that is destined to happen, it's all being driven by that Parameshwara Shakti, that one supreme ruling power, the power of God, Bhagavan's grace, in other words, is driving all these things. When such is the case, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking, it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that. If we surrender completely to Bhagavan by holding on to self-attentiveness, whatever actions the mind, speech and body need to do, they will be made to do. We need not concern ourselves with it at all. But that, for that, we need to be willing to surrender ourselves completely. Um, which, unfortunately, I think most of us will agree that we, are, we, we haven't yet reached that stage of surrender, but we shouldn't be disheartened. We have to move. That's what we have to move towards, that by, by this constant, uh, constantly trying to be self-attentive, we are gradually moving towards that. Because the more self-attentive we are, the more we are thereby surrendering ourselves to him and allowing him to... Um, He's going to make our mind, speech, and body do whatever they're meant to do in accordance with our destiny. He's going to make them do anyway. But instead of obstructing that, we are yielding ourselves to him. We're making the process easy. That's why he says in the final sentence of that 13th paragraph of Nana, he gives a beautiful analogy of the passenger tra traveling on the train. When we're traveling on a train, we know the train is carrying all the burdens. So we don't have to suffer by carrying our little luggage on our head. We can happily put the luggage aside and travel at ease. Um, likewise, if we, if we understand that whatever is, whatever is meant to happen is being made to happen by Bhagavan, we need not worry about anything. We need not think, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, I've got this responsibility, I've got... If we have responsibilities, the responsibilities are for, for the person we take ourselves to be, in other words, for the mind, speech, and body, he will make them do whatever they're meant to do. It's no concern of ours. That is the, the level of surrender we, we have to move towards. That is why he says, Mella, mella, gradually, gradually, slowly, slowly, because we're not going to achieve such surrender overnight. But that is what we are moving towards by this practice of self investigation and self surrender. <coughs> uh, Michael, uh, how are you feeling? Would you like to continue uh, for a while or? I. I don't know. Somehow Bhagavan seems to be giving me energy. So long as he gives me energy, let's make use of it. So for a little while, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. let's be moderate about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <coughs> the next question is, I am reading Path of Sri Ramana in which Sri Sadhu Om describes true Guru Bhakti. He says that we are only to take one name and form as our Guru and not multiple teachers. This seems to contradict a common trend amongst uh, spiritual aspirants who may accept several teachers as their guru. Would Michael please uh, speak about true Guru Bhakti and how Sri Ramana is a Sadguru? Uh, Namo Ramana. Uh, right. Okay. We, we need to decide what we mean by Guru. 
first of all. Um, people often say, oh, Dattatreya had 24 gurus, because there's a, there's a Puranic story of a sage Dattatreya who learned something from so many things. He learned from the birds in the sky. He learned, for example, he saw, I think one of the stories is, I think he saw a, um, a, a crow or some bird but caught a fish. And it was flying here and there and being chased by eagles. So long as it was holding on to the fish, it was being troubled by the eagles. Finally, it gave up, it let go of the fish. The eagles took the fish and it, it was left in peace. So like this, he learned from so many things. That is one sense in which the term guru is used, but that doesn't mean he had 24 jnana gurus. When Bhagavan talks about guru, he's using the term guru in a much deeper sense. According to Bhagavan, God, in, in the 12th paragraph of Nana, he begins by saying, Kadavalum guruvum unmail verala. God and guru are in truth not different. So how many gods there are? Some people believe may believe there are many gods with many different powers. Likewise, there may be many gurus with many different powers. But if we are following, if we're going deep in the spiritual path, God is one, guru is one. Um, he also says the guru is nothing but our own reality, our own, that, that which is shiny in our heart as I am, that is guru. So, why he says that that which is shiny in our heart as I am is Guru is because that that our real nature, Atmasvarupa, is the is the light of awareness um, that illumines the mind and enables the mind to know all other things. By turning our attention within, we 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 are thereby illumined or enlightened, so to speak, by that. That is the more we turn our attention within, the more we are immersing ourselves in the clarity of, a, of the pure awareness that we actually are. That pure awareness is Guru. But because our attention is going outwards, because the nature of the mind is to be constantly going outwards, Guru, uh, though Guru is ever shining in our heart as our own being, he appears outwardly in form in order to teach us the term within. So the outward form of Bhagavan, that is not the true form of Bhagavan. The true form of Bhagavan is that which is that awareness that is ever shining in the heart of all of us. As he says in the when he was asked who is our who who, who are you, he said, Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatman who blissfully exists as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all uh, different jivas, beginning with Hari. Ariyati Tarajivara Dahavari Jagohail Arivairami Paramatuman Arunachala Ramanan. So that is what Bhagavan really is. He is not the person he seems to be. He is that which is shiny in our heart as our own being. But he has appeared outwardly in human form in order to give us these teachings to turn us within. How many Outward forms do we need to tell us the term within? If we don't listen to Bhagavan, are we going to listen to anyone else? You can go to a hundred gurus. Either those hundred gurus will tell you different things or they'll tell you the same thing. If they're telling you the same thing, which is term within, then one guru is sufficient. 
what is the use of going to, why do we need to go to so many gurus to tell us the same thing? That is, that's one point. The other point is, there are so many would-be gurus, there are so many imitation gurus, there are so many who, who pose as guru, who like to be guru, uh, whereas the true guru, like Bhagavan, Bhagavan never accepted the role of guru because he said, in the view of guru, there are no others, there's no one in ignorance. So it's only from the perspective of a disciple that guru is guru, not from the perspective of guru. But there, uh, there are so many egos who want, I want to be guru, to be guru is very grand. Then people come and prostrate towards uh, towards me and they'll all admire me. So that's very, of course, it's, it's, it's for, for, for someone who is not on the spiritual path, someone who doesn't want to surrender this ego, who doesn't see ego as the biggest problem, for them, being guru is very nice. But that is, so there's so, for every genuine guru, you'll get a thousand um, would-be gurus. And not all these would-be gurus are necessarily um, bad. I mean, there are gurus at so many different levels. There are so many good, good people who are gurus at a certain level. They may guide people at a certain level, but we're talking about the ultimate guru, the sad guru, the, the supreme guru, the, the jnana guru, the one who is going to bring about the annihilation of ego. That guru, only one is necessary. And another reason is, in any in any genuine spiritual path, one thing that is always emphasized is one pointedness. You, you we we don't uh, do a little bit of puja, a little bit of japa, a little bit of jhana, a little bit of this, and or oh, let me try this. There's a new meditation come to town. Let me try this meditation course, that meditation course. This is just floating on the surface. If we want to go deep, we need to we need to just choose one path and follow that. The analogy, but it's a, it's a very old analogy, has been given by so many people. If you want, if you want to water, you need to choose one place to dig a well and dig, 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 dig until you get the water. If you dig five feet here, oh, there's no water here. Let me try there. You dig five feet there and five feet there. You're not going to end up with any water. So, on this in this spiritual path, we need to select one path, one guru and follow that to the end. So uh, it, it's, it's only for the fickle and outward going mind that there'll be attraction to many gurus. If we are, if we are, uh, if we are truly following, the, if, we are, if we are truly dedicated to the spiritual path, we will be satisfied with one guru. And there's no guru to compare with Bhagavan because Bhagavan's teachings are so simple and it's the ultimate what Bhagavan is teaching us. It, it is, other gurus are necessary. It's important that there are other gurus because not everyone is ready, is, is ready yet to follow Bhagavan's path. So there are so many gurus to teach people at different levels of spiritual development. But we have now come to a final path. On this final path, one guru is sufficient. And that one guru for us is Bhagavan. No other guru is necessary. And some people say, oh, living guru is necessary. Uh, as if Bhagavan is a dead guru. It, that is because people mistake a person, the person to be a guru, 
they think living guru is necessary. When Sadhuon was asked whether living guru is necessary, he said, yes, absolutely living guru is necessary. Uh, but if what you mean by living guru is a living body, your living guru is one day going to become a dead guru. What is the use of a, such a such a guru? We want an eternally living guru. That eternally living guru is Bhagavan, because he his fundamental teaching is, I am not this body. When his body was about to die, and people were weeping, saying, oh, Bhagavan, don't leave us, he said, where can I go? I am always here. Why? What did he mean when he said, I'm always here? Um, superficially, we can take it to mean he's always there in Ramanasham in Tiruvannamalai. Yes, there's a, that's a very special place, because that's a place where he lived, and that's, the, and that's a place where Aranatra is. But it has a deeper meaning than that. When he says, I am always here, he means in all times and in all places, he is ever-present in our heart, because he is that which is... Ariyati Tarajivara Dahabari Jaguhail Aribairami Paramatma Arunachala Ramanan. Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatma, uh, the, the supreme spirit, the ultimate self, but is shining in the shining as awareness in the shining blissfully as awareness in the cape of the heart lotus of all the different jivas from the from Hari, the highest god down to the smallest insect, he's in the heart of all of us. And then in the second half of that verse, he, he, tell, he, he doesn't just ask us to believe this, he shows us how to experience it. Parival ulum, ulum uruha, heart melting with love. Um, uh, Paranandidu uh, guheyandu, uh, reaching the cave where that uh, uh, where that sublime supreme dwells, Arivam uh, um, Viri um, Tirava, the eye of awareness opening, Nijamarivai, you will know this truth, Aduveliam, it will reveal itself. So, the, if we if you want to follow a, the, the, the path shown by Guru, it means turning within. It's, it's not going out looking for other gurus, other gurus, other gurus. That's missing the point. If we, if we truly are following Bhagavan's teachings, we shouldn't be looking outwards for anything. We should be looking within because all his teachings are directing us to look back within. And to, in order to, to turn back within and sink into the heart, to be swallowed by him, we need heart melting with love, parival ulum uruha, the heart must melt with love. Love is always one-pointed. So it's, it's anyone who thinks going to multiple gurus is okay, it's fine for them, but that is not, that's a very super, that's, that's, that's kindergarten bhakti. We 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 are on the if we are following Bhagavan's path, this is the ultimate path of bhakti, parabhakti tattva. This is the very supreme devotion: is to turn within and to be as we actually are. Multiplicity is, exists only in the view of the outward term mind. The truth is, ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. And what is that one? Tatvamasi, you are that. So we should be turning our attention within, away from all multiplicity, to find the one reality that is ever shining in our heart as our own being. That one reality, I am, 
that is Bhagavan, that is Guru, that is God, that is what we actually are. The next question is, I am aware of existence and awareness, that is myself, but I cannot fix the mind on myself alone. I can be aware of myself and the five sheets simultaneously, but I am not able to be aware of just myself. I can attend to my existence awareness, but it's conflated with adjuncts. Is self-awareness, yeah, sorry, is self-remembrance mixed with awareness of forms a good practice if I cannot be just self-remembering? That is, so long as we rise as ego, there will be conflation of I am with adjuncts. But our aim is to hold on to I am, to to, to <clears throat> that is we the very fact that you talk about I am and adjuncts uh, or the five sheaves or whatever, you're clearly aware of a distinction between yourself and all these other things. All these five sheaves, these adjuncts, they're all objects. They're all things that we know as other than ourselves. So what we are to hold on to is only our own being. Yes. We, because we're not holding on to our being firmly enough, because we're not going deep enough within, there is still a, awareness of the uh, of, uh, five sheaves. doesn't matter. We should try more and more and more to hold on to our being. The more we go deep in self-attentiveness, the more other things will withdraw into the background. And eventually, when we manage to turn the full 180 degrees, so to speak, Everything else will disappear and our being alone will remain. So we, 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 we should, we, our aim is to attend only to ourselves. By attending only to ourselves, to the extent to which we attend only to ourselves, to that extent our attention will be withdrawn from other things. But we clearly need to have a clear understanding of the distinction between ourselves as mere being, as mere awareness, and all other things which are just objects. So we need to recognize that all that we now take ourselves to be is actually not ourselves, it's just an object, it appears. That, that is, these five sheaths, they appear in waking a dream. Where are they in sleep? In sleep we're aware of nothing other than I am. That is what we must try to move towards.